Our text this morning is in the book of Genesis, chapter 35. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise And go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, For she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. 
When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning that you would teach us from this story of Jacob and his life. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us of our own relationship with you and of our own need for you. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the story of Jacob is coming to an end. He has been with us for some time now, hasn't he? We have watched him as he has gone from birth to fighting with his brother to obtaining a blessing and a birthright by not exactly the most honorable of means to fleeing for his life, seeing the Lord himself and a heavenly host ascending and descending upon a ladder, finding relatives and the girl of his dreams, only to then labor for not seven but fourteen years to obtain not one but two wives. And then we watched as children were born to him, and as he had difficulty with his father-in-law and had to flee again for his life. And then we watched as with fear and trepidation he was about to meet his brother and God met with him and changed him. And so we come here now to Jacob in his old age. He's lived a full and long life. There is still time to come, but after this point, the focus of our camera lens, as it were, shifts to his sons. And so we have this last incident and it's, it's an interesting mishmash of a chapter, isn't it? Traveling here and there. People dying here and there. God coming in and speaking. And there's actually one part that's very confusing, it seems, where God comes and says to him that you are now Israel. And we scratch our heads and we flip back in our Bibles and we say, but Moses, God already did that. Maybe Moses forgot. Maybe he wrote it again. You know, we laugh, but there are some who insist this is proof that Moses didn't write this book because a later author stuck this in here because he forgot an earlier author had put it. What is going on? I think what we are seeing here this morning is Jacob 
becoming Israel. Jacob has been named Israel. God has declared to him who he is. And now we are seeing God in his grace actually bringing about that change that he has declared in the life of Jacob. God can declare that kind of change in your life as well. And when he declares it, he will perform it. And so this morning I would like us to see three things about Jacob's interaction here and about our interaction with our own God. First, we will see serving God. He begins now to serve God as Israel. Second, we will see hearing God. As Jacob now hears again from the lips of the Lord who he is and what he has promised. And then thirdly, we will see what it is like to wait for God. This is not an easy thing in the life of Jacob. But it is not an easy thing for you or for me either. Serving God, hearing God, and waiting for God. Let's begin then with serving God at the very beginning of this chapter. God comes and he says to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. God tells Jacob what he is to do. You have to make there an altar to the God who appeared to you when you were running from your brother. Remember, Jacob? Remember how scared you were? Remember the vow you made? Remember how eager you were to promise to set up an altar? Get to it. Now, this has special poignancy to us after we have looked at chapter 34, doesn't it? Because the whole point of chapter 34 was that Jacob had stopped short. He had thought he could do just enough for God without being completely committed. And disaster followed. And this is true for you and for me, isn't it? If we are honest with ourselves... We know that we are not always where we should be. Others may think we are. People even close to us. Family members, spouses. But if we're honest, we're not where we should be. Our prayers are not as fervent as they ought to be. Our study of the scripture is not as consistent as it should be. Our trust upon the living God for all of the details of life is not what it ought to be. We can be in a place where we talk a good game, but we haven't obeyed. And look what God does in this situation. He comes to Jacob with tones of grace and encouragement. He comes to him and he says, remember, Jacob... You took a vow. You need to go and do it. Go now. This is not chastisement. This is not anger and wrath. This is how God deals with his children. He's reminding Jacob of what is not only his vow, but what is good for him. And Jacob understands this. And he begins then to pack up the family and to go. And this is where we will see in just a minute as he leads his family. This is something where we need to understand, especially 
fathers. Leading your family begins with you. You see, first, Jacob must obey. First, Jacob must have in his mind a frame in which he is obeying the Lord, in which he is trusting the Lord, because if he does not, no one will follow an uncertain sound. And so Jacob now has steeled himself to complete obedience. He is ready to go to Bethel. He is ready to build the altar. And he is now ready to lead his family. He remembers what has been promised. He remembers God's blessing. He goes to his family and he says, We must go now so that I might make an altar to the God who was with me during all the hard times. To the God who has blessed me. And then... He takes the next logical step. He begins by obeying, and now he begins leading, taking responsibility for others around him. I dare say there is one thing that improperly understood in modern evangelicalism has hurt our understanding of God. And that is when we speak of Christianity as a personal relationship with God. And then we put a period there. Of course, faith in Christ is about a personal relationship with the living God. But it does not end with us. We are not a sea of individuals. We are not living in silos, separate and apart from others around us. We have responsibility to our spouse, to our children, to our parents, to our friends, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not enough merely that I worry about my relationship with God. I must have that relationship in community. I must be encouraging others. I must be willing to take rebuke from others. This is what life is like in the covenanted people of God. And Jacob does finally what he ought to have done decades ago. He cleans house. You know what that's like, ladies, don't you? When life is a bit too busy to get to things, and you look and the sun comes in from the window and brilliantly lights up the huge cobweb in the corner. Or you trip over the toys that are left out. And you say to yourself, oh, I've got to get to this. But you don't have time. And then when you finally steal yourself and you get time, You get out all the cleaning supplies, perhaps even the rubber gloves. And you really go and you get to it. And it'll never be cleaner than when I've gotten to it now. And that's what Jacob does. You see, Jacob has put up with idols in his household for a long time. You remember that Rachel brought her father's idols. It's very likely that all of the women and children that unfortunately they took with them from Shechem, they have idols For all we know, their children have idols. And Jacob is finally saying, we need to get serious with God. This is the God who has protected us. This is the God who is with us. This is the God who loves us. Let's stop fooling around. And so what they do is they take all of their idols, they're literally their gods of foreignness. And he says, we're going to gather them all up, even the earrings, ladies. Because you see, in those days, earrings could be thought to be kind of magical. They could be a good luck charm. 
And he takes them all and he buries them under an oak tree. And he says, we're going to leave them here and never come back. He cleans house. Now, you may say to yourself, this is wise and good. I'm so glad we don't have to deal with that. I don't have any totem poles in my house. No magical earrings here. I'm so glad that in America, in the 21st century, there is no idolatry at all. And then we think, well, you know, I do trust an awful lot in my savings account. You know, I do find all kinds of satisfaction in my job. kind of wish I could live there if I could. Oh, oh, everything is for my kids. All that I'm concerned about is my kids. And we follow them around from all of their activities, from place to place to place to place, never having any time for the Lord. Because we're worshiping our kids. You see, idolatry comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. You don't have to have a lucky rabbit's foot in your pocket to have an idol. And you see, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, calls not only him, but he calls you and he calls me to lay aside all of the idols that will snare our hearts. Whether it be family, politics, or economics, to lay them aside, to bury them forever, we might serve the living God. We must be single-minded in our service for God. And then something wonderful happens that I'm not even sure Jacob is aware of. You remember Jacob is a bit of a worrywart. And he is very worried after now this incident at Shechem that all of the people around are going to see him come after him and wipe out his family. So he is, I think, all too pleased to get out of town. To get out of Dodge. But he's got to get out. He's got to make it to Bethel. How is he going to do it? And you see here what God does when Jacob is in the path of obedience. He protects him. The terror, not of Jacob, not of his sword, but the terror of God falls upon all of these towns around. And you could imagine that they are perhaps holed up in their homes peeking through the shutters as this fearsome group of 12 men and ladies and kids go walking through. And you can imagine Jacob's not even aware of it. He's perhaps still frightened, looking out, waiting for the attack that doesn't come. But you see, God is there. This is also a lesson for us, that as we are in the path of obedience, God is there protecting us. Maybe not in ways we can discern. Maybe not in ways that we will recall until later. But God does protect His children. He watches over them. This is how Jacob serves God. And then as they are traveling, God meets with Jacob yet again. And Jacob has an opportunity for hearing God hearing what God has to say. And the very first thing is what God has to say about Jacob. It reminds us to listen to God about ourselves. In verse 9, 
God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Now, this is an incredibly significant incident. It is the last time in the book of Genesis that God appears to a patriarch in person, in a theophany. Later on, God will appear to Joseph in dreams. So this is the last visit, so to speak, face to face. And what does God use this last visit for? Does he use it to tell Jacob all of the things that he has messed up? No. Does he use it to tell Jacob of how short he has fallen of his expectations? No. You know what that's like, don't you? You've had a boss call you in a room and tell you all the various ways in which you aren't shaping up. Maybe it was dad's sigh of disappointment in front of you. How you just didn't measure up. Maybe it was your wife's snicker. How you just don't have it all together. But you see, that's not how God deals with his children. The very last and most important time that he is going to meet face to face to Jacob, he looks Jacob right in the eye and he says, you may think you're Jacob, supplanter, trickster, sinner, man who has messed up at every front, but you are not. You are Israel. That's what I see. Think of how life-changing that is. This isn't just a name. This is God looking at his child and saying, I see you and you are a blessing. Do you hear that voice of God about yourself? Because I'll tell you, there are plenty of people around to tell you how bad you are, how lazy you are, how difficult you are, how you don't have it together, how you don't have enough money, how you don't have enough manners, how you don't have enough purpose. There are plenty of people around, plenty of publications to tell you how you need to learn to live with being the miserable wretch that you are. And God says, that's a lie from the pit of hell. If you believe in Jesus, then you are changed in Christ and you are my child. You are Israel. You are no longer who you were. You are not who you think you are. You are who I declare that you are. Israel is here because God has brought it about. He has changed him forever. And now the promises are so real. You see, God then not only speaks about who Israel is, but he speaks about the promises that he has given to him. And he reiterates these again. He says to him, be fruitful and multiply A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and your offspring after you. You see, it is God's prerogative to bless. God has protected Israel. And now Israel is standing on that very promised land. And so God repeats the promises to him. And you can, you can almost imagine that as he's speaking and he speaks about the land, perhaps Israel is feeling the earth squish between the toes in his sandals. As he speaks about 
this inheritance for his seed. He can look around and see all of the children that God has given to him. When he tells him that he will become a nation, a nation of kings, what an encouragement. And Israel can trust this. Because it's virtually identical to the promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Look it up. Point by point, line by line. Jacob now says the promises that God made true for Abraham, the promises that God brought true to my father Isaac are now mine. I can seize them. God not only tells us who we are, He tells us what we can expect of Him in our lives. And Israel responds in the only way that He should, with worship. Do you see that? In verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he pours a drink offering over it. And what he's saying here is, Lord, I trust you. I give you my all. You are the one that I worship and serve. And there is a real connection here between what God has said and now how Israel acts. There's an interesting thing here in verses 13, 14, and 15. It's a phrase. Do you see it? It's almost too repetitive. And God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And in verse 14, where he had spoken with him. And in verse 15, where he had spoken with him. You see, God is now making very real and clear to Israel that the relationship that they have is independent of place, independent of time, and independent of circumstances. It is a declaration that God has made to Israel. You see, before, when they met in this place, Jacob looked around and he said, This is the house of God. This is a really neat place. There's something special about it. If I could only get back here later, maybe I can recapture some of that magic. Have you felt like that? You know the saying, you can't go home again? Well, you know it's true. Those magical memories, those magical things about the place where you first worked or first grew up or first went to school, they don't remain. I remember the first time that we were back in Niagara Falls, all of us together, and I decided to take us down my very first street where I lived, 77th Street in Niagara Falls. And I went and I drove by and I was going to show and point out to my children my neighborhood and we got to the house and I wasn't sure it was my old house because they'd ripped out all the shrubs in front. And, and part of my whole childhood was playing baseball and basketball in my driveway with this big green mesh fence. And it was gone. And I thought, is this really the place? But you see, the magic is not in the place. The place doesn't matter. What makes the special is the time and the relationships that we have. And this is true here. You notice what... Israel now calls this place, he doesn't call it Bethel, he calls it El Bethel. He says the God of the house of God. You see, your lives are going to change. I hate to tell you this. Your kids are going to move away. 
you're going to move out of your house and perhaps first into a condo and maybe then into a place that is called assisted living. You may even, perish the thought, move out of Texas. But no matter where you go, where you live, God is there with you. You don't need to recapture the magic of a time or a place. You need to hold on to God. And then every new place you will be will have that same kind of magic. It will be a blessing because God is there. This is especially important to us as we look at our third point this morning. Waiting for God. Because you see, it is hard to wait for God when things are hard. Isn't it? Especially in times of trouble. Now, if we were to think about this in a logical fashion, if we were to think about this in a very modernistic fashion, we would say this is the best time of Jacob's life. This is best life now. Because he's finally obeying the Lord. Everything should happen. He should get triple the flocks that he had. Maybe you get a fifth wife. More kids. What, a, what blessings is God going to rain down on Israel now that he is finally walking with the Lord? Now God can finally bless him. Because you know God doesn't bless people unless they're obedient. So what does God do? God sends him rebellion in the midst of his house. You see, our expectation is often that if we just do what God says, he'll hand it over, right? We don't like to enunciate that, but really a lot of our life is a temptation to act like a child who has cleaned his room and now has his hand out for the cookie. And if you don't give him the cookie, you're being unfair. And that's how we can treat God. Listen, God, I've honored my husband. You need to give me the best marriage on earth. Now, listen, Lord, I have loved my wife. You need to give me peace and quiet now. Listen, Lord, I have worked hard. I've gone on youth retreats. I've read my Bible. I've had my quiet time. I want to be in my school now. Give it to me. But you see, that's not how life works. Jacob is at his most obedient now. He is Israel. And Reuben begins a rebellion in his house. You see, what's going on here is not some standard garden variety immorality. This is Reuben trying, quite frankly, to copy dad. To seize his birthright now. He is doing this to cut in front of not only all the other kids, but dad. This is his way of saying, listen, old man, you've carried us pretty far so far. But now, let somebody who knows what they're doing get in charge. We would never expect this. We would have expected this during all of the other bumbling attempts that Israel has had with leading his family. Now he's finally leading his family like he's supposed to, and everything goes off the rails. Why is this? Isn't there some sort of formula that we need to follow? No. And one of the things we must repent of right now is treating God like a genie. 
that we rub the lamp and he gives us wishes. The living God, creator of the universe, sovereign king of the world is not at our beck and call. We need to remember that. There's a second way and time, though, of difficulty in waiting for God. And it's a time that many of you know well. It's hard to wait on the Lord in times of grief, isn't it? And this chapter just reads like a chapter of grief. There are three deaths in this chapter, three very dear deaths to Israel in this chapter. How does he get through? The first one we see in verse 8, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. Now, before we think, well, you know, that's too bad. The family servant died. You need to understand that Deborah came with Rebecca from Paden Aram. She has been with the family probably about 140 years. She is not hired help. She is the one that got Rebecca through all of the hard times when she couldn't have a child, when she had two kids that all they would do is fight, when she wasn't sure what was going to happen between her husband and her sons. And then, when Jacob gets married, she goes off to Jacob's household to train that entire family, to teach them how to be proper parents. She is a member of the family because you see, when she dies, they bury her under this oak and they call it Alon Bakuf. You can take out your Hebrew dictionaries now. No. What it means is oak of sorrow. Can you imagine that? You wouldn't do that when your mechanic dies, would you? You wouldn't do that when the girl who checks you out at Panera dies, would you? She's dear to the family. This is a blow. And then on the heels of that comes something even more difficult. There's an occasion of joy about to happen. Rachel is about to have a child. Now this is an epic-making event. Everybody else is having babies all over the place, but not Rachel. And now finally she's about to have a second child, and it's a hard labor, and she's in great pain. And you can tell the midwife is trying to encourage her, and she says, in the midst of the worst pain, it's a boy. You can do it. It's a boy. And Rachel looks, and she knows that she's not going to survive. And she names this child, son of my sorrow, and dies. Now, you know how dear Rachel was to Israel, right? You knew that she was his life, so much so that he mistreated Leah. He mistreated other children. She was his moon and sun. And he responds in the midst of this horrible event. This is the worst thing that has ever happened to Israel. And he looks right at this boy and he says, no, 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 no. Not son of my sorrow. Son of my right hand. God will carry me through. This boy will be a blessing. You see, in the midst of this sorrow, 
His long friend has died. His wife has died. And he does not know what to do, but he knows that life goes on. And the only way that life can go on is by following the Lord. This is what we are called to. And so even on the third death, when he comes back and he is reunited with Isaac, can you imagine what they would have talked about all of those wasted years? They would have talked about family. They could have each shared with each other how they had blown it time and time again in their families. And at 180 years of age, Isaac dies. Sorrow upon sorrow. And now Israel has all of the weight of carrying the family on his shoulders. What do you do in the midst of these trials, in the midst of grief that you know will come? You see, we all understand the logic of life that we are all mortal. But let me ask you this question. Young people here, as you look at your parents and when they complain because they have a backache that they're old and you go, oh, you're not old. Are you prepared someday for the day when they will die? When you will not have them to hug, to come alongside, to get advice from. Are you prepared? The only way you can be prepared is by seeking the Lord now and by seeing the blessing that the family that you have that the Lord has given to you. Because you see, following Jesus Christ is not about the removal of all pain. It is not about the removal of all sin and living a perfect life. It is not about the removal of death. And the sooner we learn this, the better. But following Jesus Christ is about the removal of the evil of sin and of the sting of death. There is great hope because we follow Jesus. Are you ready to live your life today as Israel? as the one whom the Lord has changed and who will carry through all of the trials and tribulations of life. The Lord is with you. Follow Him. Trust Him. For He has completed His work in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that that you have reminded us of your great work in us, never forgetting us, O oh Lord. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us in the way. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.